to doing God's work, planting Tulsi, growing flowers for Krishna, planting vegetables for Krishna, establishing a temple for Krishna, publishing the books of Krishna, all that Krishna work, hearing, chanting, all these things. He can do this alone, happy. And his sustenance for doing that depends on God. And one time I was walking with Prabhupada and Prabhupada used to ask me, so what are they saying, Tripurari Maharaj? I said, well, Prabhupada, they say we're parasites, one time I told him. They say we're parasites. We're simply going and leeching off the society. Then when Prabhupada just said, very quickly, he said, then stop giving. And he would ask me to ask, what are people saying? And I'd give the question and then he'd pretend that I was the questioner and then he'd give the answer. So I'm saying, you're parasites. He said, then stop giving. But you can't. This is how he answered the question. The purport was, of course, stop giving. You think you're giving, but you're not giving. God's giving. You're the instrument. And this will go on. And Krishna will find instrument to provide for me. But you can't stop. Why are you? The people that say we're parasites, then people should stop giving. But they can't stop giving because there's a force greater than them that's causing them to give and provide for the mission that it can go on. So those who are doing only bhakti, they should depend on God and they should let other people know, <laughs> perhaps, if it's a preaching mission, this is their business. For their benefit, we're telling them, you should be giving to the mission your money and your expertise. As I mentioned, if to live in the world, you have to learn things. You have to get a degree in psychology or you have to know how to do business, whatnot. And the practical, this is the beauty of a mission like Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasthi Thakur's that he envisioned, or ISKCON movement, or, you know, any of these missions in our Gaudiya Saraswat line, as opposed to times previous. It really had a, this was the dive of Arnashram conception, it really had scope for engaging people practically, society-wide, catching them up in Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's mission. This country, any country, is a good example. If you got to buy property, you may need a real estate agent, and if you're only planning Tulsi, then... What do you know about what commission he should get and uh, all those things? So someone else may be a big real estate tycoon. He's a devotee, so he shares his expertise, his knowledge. As a lawyer, what? And this is right livelihood to share that with the mission, financially and our expertise and so forth. And then, of course, those who have that enough mystic insight to be detached enough from wanting to do their own thing to just being peaceful, doing. Krishna's seva, in the context of that, in time, they will get some spontaneous attraction for Krishna. Developed from Vaidhimarg to Ragbhakti. They'll get Adhikar for that. This is the way in which Bhakti Vinod Thakur taught. One thing about Bhakti Vinod Thakur we should understand is that Bhakti Vinod Thakur wrote so many things, so many books he wrote in big print, so many words. But there is one person who read the fine print of Bhaktivinoda Thakur. And he read it inside, outside, backwards, frontwards, upside down, and down. And he made a mission out of the fine print. His name is Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur. He took the fine print. Like the fine print, if you don't read it, you're in big trouble in some contracts that you sign. right? If you don't read the fine print of Bhaktivinoda Thakur, you can say everything he said in big print and missed the whole purport of Bhaktivinoda Thakur's mission and his purpose. That's why Bhaktisiddhanta Sarsi Thakur took a magnifying glass to the fine print and made a mission out of the fine print. Not that the big print won't be realized, but the implications of the big print would be realized and understood so we could actually enter into the big print. In other words, Bhaktivinoda Thakur was living amongst so many persons who, in, in his estimation, had misunderstood the teaching of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, cheapened the teaching, distorted it, made such a high thing out to be more accessible than it actually is. And he it said, when, when amongst politicians, you should speak as a politician. So, when amongst Sahajiyas, you should speak as a Sahajiya. So, he was known to associate with those persons and Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasitaka, by contrast, for example, took a vow never to come within 50 feet of a Sahajiya. One day when Bhakti Vinodaka was discussing with the famous Sahajiya, 
his young son, Bhimal Prashad, came and paid obeisances from 50 feet away. And the Sahaja said, well, you have a very nice son, you're very well trained. He sees you from a, just a distance, and he pays his obeisance. And Bhaktivinoda Thakur said, yes, uh, actually it is. He's taken a vow not to come within 50 feet of a Sahaja. And you are a Sahaja, so... <laughs> So, in like a needle, Bhaktivinoda Thakur, and out like a plow, to use Prabhupada's analogy, Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur, and such disturbance he caused in the society. But all he was doing was magnifying the fine print of Bhaktivinoda Thakur. And as I said, if you don't read the fine print of the contract, you shouldn't sign on. You won't know what's really involved. So this kind of talking about this bhakti in a kind of a progression as I have is much in line with the, the way in which Bhaktivinoda Thakur envisioned a worldwide mission. So we are interested in Raghunuga bhakti and we're also interested in Vaidhi bhakti and we're also interested in right livelihood and we're also interested in the mystic insight or knowledge and all these things in the context of bhakti. We're not ever advocating that someone should become a karma yogi first and then he can become a jnana yogi and then he can be I'm a Dhyan yogi. Bhagavad Gita reads like that at first, but if you look at the whole thing, it says, what's really saying is become a bhakta. And everything that you can get in karma yoga and jnana yoga and dhyana yoga should come inside of you in the context of practicing bhakti if you do it right. And what comes at the end is one thing. What comes at the beginning is another. We should learn to look for the symptoms in the beginning that they're coming in me. Then we'll see, I'm on the path, I'm getting a road sign, you're going in the right direction. The thing that we'll arrive at the end very quickly is unrealistic. Not only is it unrealistic, but it's detrimental to our progress. Because it's not understanding the dignity and the height of such a thing, which is required to give the kind of regard for it that it might choose of its own as it is its prerogative to descend within us. Otherwise, we cannot have it. Not possible. So, anyway, we went a bit on a tangent, but we got into this by discussing the fact that the Pandavas soldiers were all in heart, in spirit, fully with Yudhisthira Maharaj and the Pandavas, every single one of them. And on Duryodhana's side, People were there by force of circumstance or some obligation politically, socially, and that weakened. So Vaidhi Bhakti is weaker. What to speak of karma yoga and all the other things? Weaker means for uniting with the Lord. Ours is a ragmarg sampradaya. That's a fact. So we should aspire for that high ideal, but do it in a practical way, in a realistic way that we might go there. So Duryodhana, anyway, he's a, he is actually really... A, unsure, unsure of his position. He's surrounded by warriors who are great in substance, but they're not great in terms of their commitment to him. So he makes these overstatements. They're prepared to die for me and and so forth. And this is, again, this is kind of exaggeration sometimes that betrays sometimes a, some kind of inferiority complex or a lack of self-esteem. So, again, going, continuing with the players mentioned here and on the side of uh, Duryodhana. Duryodhana knows that Karna has vowed not to fight until Bhima is killed. He nevertheless mentions Karna after Bhishma to remind him that should Bhishma de- be defeated, he will be relying on Karna to bring him victory. Kripa and Ashvatama are related to Drona and his brother-in-law as his brother-in-law and son, respectively. Mentioning them will certainly encourage Drona Charja. Duryodhana gives Kripa the epithet ever victorious in battle to make up for the fact that he mentioned him after Karna. So he's speaking politically to pacify everybody and try to get their allegiance fully. As for Vikarna, he is not in the same class as the rest of the warriors mentioned. Duryodhan has mentioned him, along with the others, to flatter him. The battle has not yet begun, and he could still switch sides without deviating from the principles of a warrior. Duryodhana knows that there is a real chance that he might do so, for he was the lone objector in Duryodhana's ranks to the insults hurled at the Pandava's wife, Draupadi, insults that fueled the Pandava's fury and this whole war. Pariyattam tadasmakam balam bhishma birakshitam 
pariyaptam tvidam etesham balam bhima birakshitam. Our strength is immeasurable, guarded as it is by Bhishma, whereas their force, guarded by Bhima, is limited. So again, this more of this talk, trying to convince himself and his uh, warriors that they have a chance. Expertise in social etiquette is the ornament of cultured people. However, just as looks can deceive, so can words for those who do not understand their intent. This is an important point, of course. We have heard that Vani is more important than Vapu. Vani means instruction, and Vapu means like the personal presence of the Guru. So we could be in the personal presence of the Guru, but if we don't follow his, his Vani, his instructions, then what is the value of that? Whereas if we're not in the personal association of the Guru, but we follow his instructions, we may be closer to him than one who is in close physical proximity, but doesn't does not. So, you've all heard this point, Vani is more important than Vapu. We should take it also to the point that the Vani of the Vani is more important than the Vapu of the Vani. Because we can be following or mouthing the words, the instructions of the Guru, without understanding the meaning behind them, or his intent, and be associating only with the outer appearance of his instructions. Just like we all have the experience of someone telling us that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life, and no man cometh to the Father except through me. Or Prabhupada said, anybody living outside of Iskon is living in a hallucination. Something like this, right there in Bhagavatam. Third Kiano, I think. So anyway, the point is, without understanding the spirit of the instructions, then we may quote them verbatim, but do a disservice to ourselves and others whom we quote them to. Duridon certainly has every appearance of a cultured gentleman. In text 7, he praises his guru, Drona, calling him the best of Brahmins, Dvijotama. We heard that. Although Duridon addressed Drona with flattering words, the spirit of his address is denigrating. The veiled spirit of Duridon's address is that Drona, being a Brahmin, is not fit for battle. In text 8, Duryodhan praises Bhishma only after praising Drona. Although Bhishma is senior, Drona is Duryodhan's guru. Drona is a Brahmana, whereas Bhishma is of the warrior caste. Had he addressed Bhishma first, Drona might have taken offense. But Bhishma, although senior, would bow to the etiquette of respecting a Brahmana over a Kshatriya. So we're just bringing this out to show how artful and expert was this Duryodhana, but how devoid of the real spirit required for spiritual progress. While Duryodhana praises Bhishma, he also expresses doubts about him. Bhishma is certainly the greatest fighter on the battlefield, and thus Duryodhana's army is fortified by his presence. Fortified by his presence, Duryodhana's army has immeasurable strength. However, the word apariyaptam, immeasurable, can be taken in two ways. And the charges like Vishwanath Chakravartitakur and Baladibhidibhushan have rendered the verse, verse 10 differently because of the twofold meaning of Aparyaptam. It's aparyaptam, paryaptam, depending on how you, how you separate the words, Sunday. So Bhagavad Bidyabhusan understands aparyaptam to be indicative of the strength of Duryodhana's army due to the military capability of Bhishma. Vishwanath Chakravartitaka, on the other hand, understands aparyaptam to indicate the potential weakness of Duryodhana's army due to the presence of Bhishma, whose commitment to Duryodhana is questionable owing to his affinity to the Pandavas, for whom he acted as a foster grandfather. Outwardly, Duryodhana's army is fortified by the strength of Bhishma, yet under scrutiny his position is one of potential compromise, and this may weaken Duryodhana's army. The word Abhirakshitam, in this verse, can also imply, watch out for Bhishma, we can't entirely be entirely sure of his commitment. Duryodhana wants to rally Bhishma, at the same time alert others to the reality of the sympathies that might compromise his resolve to fight. So see how expert he is. Bhishma is nearby in earshot of his conversation with Dronacharya. So 
He wants to say one thing to Dronacharya, actually Bhishma's weak, but say in such a way that Bhishma hears it, that our army is great because Bhishma's here, he's the strongest, his strength is immeasurable. Bhima is limited. Again, Bhima is the arch enemy that Duryodhana is really afraid of. Bhima is no doubt the most powerful of the Pandavas. And in this sense, he's their leader, although not officially so. However, he's no match for Bhishma, around whom Duryodhana's army must rally, both because of Bhishma's military might and because of his sentiment for the Pandavas. The army must both encourage Bhishma to express his military prowess and discourage him from expressing his parental affection. Ayaneshu chasarveshu yatabhagam avastitaha Bhishmam eva birakshantu bhavantu sarva evahi Throughout the battle, all of you must support Bhishma from your battle stations. Duryodhana's command for the troops rally around and protect Bhishma is intelligent, for it is well known that if Bhishma dies, they will lose. After Duryodhana mentions Bhishma, the grandsire of the Pandavas responds. So he was able to speak in such a way as to get... I mean, after all, Bhishma is a Chatriya. So these Chatriyas are characterized by being enthused by praise of themselves, as opposed to a Brahmin, for example, who will run away from praise of himself. They're heroic and kingly and so forth, warriors by nature. So he's managed to rally Bhishma to the extent that Bhishma is going to now trumpet his conch shell and announce that, okay, I'm the commander-in-chief here, and we're going to go ahead with this. You got my support, and I'm going to start the battle. Tasyasan janayan harsham guru vridha pitamaha singhanadam vinadyuchai shankam dadmu pratapavan. Bring joy to Duryodhana, Bhishma, the seasoned grandsire of the Kurus, roaring like a lion, blew his conch triumphantly. Tata shankas chaveryas cha panavanaka gomuka sahasaivhab vyahanyanta sa shabdas tumalo bhavat. Thereafter, the Kuru armies, conscious drums, cymbals, and bugles all sounded together in a tumultuous uproar. Bhishma's response encourages Duryodhana, Duryodhana, whose guru, Drona, had remained silent out of indifference towards his disciple. However, although Bhishma's roar and bugling of the conch encourages Duryodhana, it has no effect on the Pandavas. Tata shvetar hayar yukte mahati sandhanestito madhava pandavas jaiva dibhyo shanko so here Krishna is mentioned first time in Bhagavad Gita. On the other side, Madhava and the son of Pandu, standing on a great swift chariot, yoked to white horses, blew their divine conscience. So that Krishna is introduced here in Bhagavad Gita with the epithet Madhava is significant. One thing that Madhava means is the husband of the goddess of fortune. So it indicates that fortune will be there on the side of Madhava. So fortune for the Pandavas. And here we, this is where we're in the early stages, the beginning of the Bhagavad Gita. This, of course, is further reiterated at the end of the Bhagavad Gita, that fortune, victory, will always be on the side of Krishna, Sanjaya concludes. So here he's indicating it in the beginning. And in the conclusion, he reiterates what he said there. This is, of course, how books work. The introduction and the conclusion have a correspondence. Madhava, and the son of Pandu, of course, is Arjun, standing on a great swift chariot. Their chariot is mentioned alone. It's significant. This chariot, of course, was given to Arjun by the gods. It was an extraordinary chariot. But the chariot and the horses mentioned here is also drawing from the Upanishads. There's a famous example in the Upanishads. And Bhagavad Gita, of course, is Gita Upanishad. Its 700 verses constitute the, the import of all of the thousands of verses that make up the Upanishads. As I said before, 
just reading Gita Upanishad, understanding it, you can understand all of the Upanishads. And so a lot of the language is drawn from the Upanishads. In, some, in, in fact, in some chapters, some of the verses are verses directly from the Upanishads. Here, this verse is indicative of a, of a particular verse in the Upanishads where this famous analogy is given of the horses and the chariot and the reins and the driver and the passenger. So the white horses in that analogy indicate pure senses that are bridled by the reins of a controlled mind in the hands of a passenger who's the soul riding on this bodily chariot under the instruction of divine intelligence. This is, means that our life should be infused by divine guidance, of divine intelligence. Sometimes Prabhupada used to say Bhagavad Gita is the civilization of the intelligence. Being guided by divine intelligence, we can enter into the civilization of the soul itself, the Srimad Bhagavatam, where, where this, uh, the Leela of Krishna is, of course, played out. We are invited to, to enter in. So, sound is important too, of course, here in the, in the beginning of Bhagavad Gita, we hear the sound of the conch shell of Bhijma and then the sound of the conch shell of Krishna. So it's mentioned here that on the other side, Madhava, the son of Pandu, Standing on a great chariot, the verse says, a great swift chariot yoked with white horses, two white horses, blew. They blew their divine conch shells. Well, Krishna blew his first. Now, this is significant because Krishna was not a warrior. He was just the chariot driver. So, on the other side, warriors were blowing their conches, followed by Bhishma, making a big sound, a tumult, encouraging Duryodhana, but not... In any way, the sound discouraging the Pandavas, who had who? Krishna on their side. So although Krishna is not a, a warrior in this Leela, but a chariot driver, in substance, he's the leader. He heard the, the conch of Bhishma and the others. And so the etiquette is, well, one side in military array has issued a challenge by blowing the conch. So if you're going to accept the challenge, you have to respond with your horn. And Krishna quickly responded, blew his conch. So the implication is Krishna is the leader of the other side, of the Pandavas. And although he had vowed not to fight, only be the chariot driver, when he blew the conch shell, this really encouraged Arjuna and Yudhisthira and Nakul and Sahadev, who are all going to blow their conches in the next verse. And the blowing of their conches, of course, has other significance also, at least the other members, Bhima, Bhima's conch and Yudhisthira and so forth. When these conches went off, as we heard, it instilled fear in the hearts of Duryodhana and his group, whereas their conches didn't face the Pandava army. And one of the reasons, of course, is, as we're mentioning, well, Krishna is the leader, he blew his conch first, he's fully with them. And they're blowing then their conscience in, in sequel to Krishna's, and we're fully, we're with Krishna. So this is a real formula for victory. But besides that, it was, it's been mentioned that Bhima had the occasion to meet with Hanuman in Himalayas in his older age, Hanuman's old age. And, um, Hanuman gave a blessing to Bhima that whenever he blew his conch, Anuman said, I will roar also. Bhima, I think at that time, he asked him why he didn't kill Ravana. And Hanuman replied, well, I could have killed him just by my roar. But I wanted the glory to go to Ram. So they arranged it like that. But uh, I'll roar whenever you blow your conch. Madhvacharya makes the comment that, oh, when, they, their conch, when Bhima's conch blew and the other Pandavas that it was the roar of Hanuman. And then we'll go to the flag of Hanuman there on on the chariot of, of Arjuna. And so in every way, there's assurance of victory. Krishna's on the side of Pandavas. They're fully with Krishna. And such a great 
Parshad of the Lord, Ram, Hanuman is also there on their side. Otherwise, this is the first time Krishna is mentioned in the text of the Gita. The name Madhava carries with it the implication that Arjun, who is also introduced in this verse, will be victorious as Madhava is often rendered husband of the goddess of fortune. The syllable Ma indicates the goddess and Dhava means husband. The epithet Madhava is particularly sweet. Mad is the Sanskrit root from which the word madhu, honey, is derived. It also indicates intoxicated passion and madness, mada. In Chaitanya Charitamrita, Krishnadas Kaviraj Goswami uses the term madhurya, sweet, in characterizing Sringar Rasa, the sacred aesthetic rapture of conjugal love that drove Sri Chaitanya to spiritual madness. Within the appellation Madhava, both Krishna and his consort Radha reside, for there is no meaning to the husband of the goddess of fortune without the goddess herself. Madhava also means spring. Later in chapter 10, Krishna identifies himself with spring, the season of love. Herein, Sanjay indicates that the Gita is ultimately a doctrine of divine love, that reaches its zenith in Radha's love for Madhava. So, again, we're kind of peeking into the higher reach of the Bhagavad Gita here, and appropriately, right with Krishna's introduction in the first chapter. The chariot of Arjuna is singled out here. Although all the warriors are also seated on chariots, Arjuna's chariot stands out in comparison because it was a gift he received from Agni, the god of fire. It is thought to be invincible in the plane of mortals. The fact that Krishna was driving it only added to its invincibility. So again, just going back briefly to that Upanishadic verse, the chariot of the body and the horses of the senses, the controlled mind of the reins, the passenger is the soul, and the intelligence is, is Krishna. Krishna is seated on Arjuna's chariot, and he is going to direct him. So we should have Krishna seated on the chariot of our bodily life, all of our movements. And we should keep our senses pure by controlling the mind through taking his good guidance in Bhagavad Gita. Panchajanyam Rishikesho Devadatam Dhananjaya Pondram Dadhu Mahashankam Bhima Karma Vrikodaraha Krishna, the lord of the senses, blew his conch, Panchajanya. Arjuna, the winner of treasure, blew his, the Devadatta, while Bhima, of great appetite and prodigious accomplishments, sounded forth his great conch, Pundra. Although Krishna himself was a powerful warrior, he had vowed not to fight in battle. Instead, he agreed to be the charioteer of Arjuna. Nonetheless, the power of his presence on the battlefield is not to be underestimated. We should also draw from this the fact that it's not any particular position that we acquire that makes for our greatness, but how we deal with the position that we have, whatever it is. The material tendency is to identify advancement, prowess, progress, greatness with a position, attaining it in the hierarchy of whatever. But it's not the case, and Krishna demonstrates this here by in one sense, by taking the position of the chariot driver. His position is not diminished by doing so. He was an expert charioteer and, and a guide in the battle for Arjuna. So we should be careful not to be bewildered by this natural uh, and unfortunate tendency to identify with uh, whether it be Mahaprabhu said it himself, Naham vipro, na cha, narapati, napi, navaisho, nashudro, naham manincha, grihupati, no manastoyateva. I'm not a Brahmin, I'm not a Chhatri, I'm not a temple president or a sannyasi or a GBC or we, or a charja. Gopi Bhartu Parakamalayo Dasanudasa. One time Saki Charan Babu, who was a famous disciple of Bhakti Siddhanta Sarsaditaka, who was was accomplished in the world and had some funding and helped considerably to build the 
Yogapit temple in Mayapur, at the place of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's appearance, he came into the Sangha and Saraswati Thakur was sitting on an elevated seat, perhaps during the Vyasa Puja, the celebration of his appearance day. And someone then said, Oh, Sakicharan, give, give him a seat also. Distinguished Vaishnava, disciple of our Gurudev has come. So Sakicharan refused, and then Prabhupada Bhakti Siddhanta Sarsati Thakur commented, No, actually, he does not need a seat because he is a Nirupati Vaishnava. I am the Acharya, so I have accepted this Upadi. Upadi means designation of Acharya, and therefore I need to sit on the seat and be distinguished from all of you because of this designation I've accepted for service. It warrants the seat, but the real ideal, he said, was saying, is to be a Nirupadi Vaishnav, free from any designation. I've, for service, I've accepted this designation, he says, as a charger, so the seat is appropriate. But one who doesn't have any designation, one who doesn't identify, that means to say, with any position in the material world, but wholly with Krishna Bhakti, then this, this is our ideal, Nirupadi Vaishnav. Someone asked what was a Nirupati Vaishnav. Shiramarsh told the story. And he said, when in the Mahabharat, it was mentioned that, that Krishna had said that if the Rajasuya sacrifice had been performed properly, which was the sacrifice performed to coronate Yudhisthira as the king, then after it was finished, a bell should ring. This bell should ring. So everything was done nicely, appropriately, and, and so forth, but the bell didn't ring. So Krishna was asked, well, how come the bell didn't ring? You did everything right. And he said, did you, in all of the things that you did, did you f- give any prashad to a Nirupati Vaishnav? So they said, well, what do you mean? And Nard is here, and Vyas, and this one, and that one, so many great Vaishnav. Sri Krishna said, no, 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 I mean a Nirupati Vaishnav. I said, well, what, what's a Nirupati Vaishnav? She said, oh, over there in the village there's one. You can go. He's over at such and such. Go there and uh, invite him to Prashad and do some service to a Nirupati Vaishnav. So they went, the Pandavas, in their royal attire, and found this fellow living in in village. And he thought, what did I do wrong? <laughs> the king... All the big kings coming to my house? <laughs> so, no, 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 no. Krishna said that we had to serve a Nirupati Vaishnava. You're a Nirupati Vaishnava, he said. We, we've come to serve you. No, what do you mean, serve me? I don't want to take any service. You're the king. No, 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 please come. Draupadi will cook, and we'll give you prasad. So he said, okay, Krishna said, I'm a Nirupati Vaishnava. Okay, I'm a Nirupati Vaishnava. <laughs> I'll go. <laughs> so he went, Draupadi cooked. A grand feast. So you can imagine royalty with so many subtle different tastes and preparations and offered to him. And then he sat down and mixed everything together in a big kitchery and he began to eat as he was accustomed. So he finished eating and the bell didn't ring. So they asked Krishna, what happened? We fed the Nirupati Vaishnava, we served him, the bell didn't ring. So Krishna said, did anyone make any offense? And Draupadi came forward and she said, I think I might have made an offense. What is that? Well, when I saw him mix all of his food together like that, I thought, oh, he's a low-class person. Oh, he's a low-class Nirupati Vaishnava. Hmm? What did Krishna say? Yes, cook again. And Nirupati Vaishnava will eat again. Yes? <laughs> you can imagine, he just ate a whole feast, but Krishna wanted him to eat again, so he ate again. And then the bell rang. So, ideas... As Mahabhu said, Naham vipro na cha narapati napi vaishwana shudro, Naham bani na cha grihipati novanastu yitiva. We should say this when we go on the altar. I'm none of these, to do any seva. I'm none of these things. I'm none of these things. I'm simply servant of, of Krishna, who is the maintainer of the gopis. Sarvo padi venir muktam tatparat venanirmalam rishikena rishikesha sevanam bhaktir uttama. And Krishna is mentioned here as rishikesh, master of the senses. With our senses, we serve the master of the senses, without any designation, any upadi. This is bhakti, uttam bhakti, real bhakti. 
The Lord, Krishna, the Lord of the senses, blew his conch, Panchajanya Arjun, the winner of treasure, blew his a Devadatta, while beam of great appetite and prodigious accomplishments sounded forth his great conch, Pondra. Although Krishna himself was a powerful warrior, he had vowed not to fight in the battle, and instead he agreed to be the charioteer of Arjun. So he took a, this position as chariot driver. My point was his position didn't diminish by doing that. Whatever position, it doesn't matter, but serve sincerely in that position. That's all. Don't try to be a great devotee. Try to be a good devotee. And great devotees will recognize you, and then you become great by their recognition, by drawing their sympathy. So nonetheless, although he took the position of a charioteer, the power of his presence in the battlefield is not to be underestimated. Here, Krishna is addressed as Rishikesh, which indicates that he is the controller of the senses, and will thus factor significantly into the outcome of the battle. Conquering one's sensual appetite is a prerequisite to fully understanding and entering into the sacred conjugal love applied, implied in the name Madhava invoked in the previous verse. Dhananjaya refers to Arjuna's capacity to gather wealth, as he did for Yudhisthira during the great sacrifice preceding his coronation. The name also implies Arjuna's capacity to gather wealth of love of God in the instructions he will receive from Krishna. Then Anantavijayam Raja Kunti Putro Yudhishthira Nakula Sahadevas Cha Sugosha Mani Pushpako. Yudhishthira, son of Kunti, blew the Anantavijay, Nakula Sahadev blew the Sugosha Mani Pushpako, respectively. So Anantavijay, Anantavijay means unlimited victory. So that is only possible in, in spiritual life. There's no question of really any victory in material life. But in spiritual life we have unlimited victory. We can conquer over all. So Yudhisthira will do so. That was the name of his conch. He blew it. The others blew theirs. And others. The paramount archer, the king of Kasi, the great warrior, Sikandi, Dhristaduna, Virata, the invincible Satyaki, Drupada, and the sons of Drupada, together with the mighty armed son of Subhadra, all blew their conch shells. O earthly lord. So there's a mention of a lot of persons who blew their conch shells on the side of the Pandavas, whereas there's not much mention of so many on the other side. This is because Sanjay is favorable for the Pandavas' side, so he's liking to mention all of these people. He'd like to mention more of them if time would permit, but it didn't. Vridharashtra as the best of is at best an earthly king. But Krishna and Arjun reside ride, excuse me, on a celestial chariot given by the fire god Agni. As their conch shells are divine, so too are they. It's well known that when Krishna went to the gates of hell to receive his guru's son, he blew his mighty conch and stopped the suffering therein is mentioned in the Puranas. The Skanda Purana of Antikanda describes some of the details of this event thus. The hell known as Asipatravan lost the sharp sword-like leaves on its trees, and the hell named Raurava became free of Ruru beasts. The Bhairava hell lost its fearfulness, and all the cooking of people stopped in the Kumbipaka hell. Their sinful reactions eradicated. All the inhabitants of hell attained liberation and entered the spiritual world, just from the sound of Krishna's conch shell. In this verse, Krishna's conch shell heralds victory for the pious Pandavas. Its sound terrifies the heart of Duryodhana, whereas the Pandavas remain undisturbed after hearing the conscience of Bhishma and his army. Pure hearts know no fear. Even the conch shells of the Pandavas are feared in battle, not to speak of the Pandavas themselves. So there's some indication here, implication, that by sound also we'll become victorious. And this, of course, is the teaching of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. And Vedanta confirms that at the end of Vedanta Sutra it is mentioned that anavrti, and you will not return, and there is no return. And those Brahman, there is no return. Yadgatvana nivartan teta dhamma paramamama. 
And why? Because Shabda, because of Shabda. So it means literally because the scripture has said so. But it also means because to comprehensively understand the Brahman means to understand Krishna, Radha Krishna. And that can be understood by sound, by the sound of the holy name given by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. So sound will deliver us. Gayatri means that song of deliverance. And that Gayatri sound coming from the flute of Krishna to the heart of Brahma, the ear of Brahma, is synonymous with the Sankirtan of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. So by Nam, Krishna Nam, we can enter the land of no return. So by sound, we will become victorious. So by the very sound at the beginning of the Bhagavad Gita, it was indicated just by the sound of the councils, victory would be there for the Pandavas. So we should take heart in this. By the sound of the scripture, by hearing the Shastra, we can become victorious. And within Shastra, that body of sound, that jungle of sound, if we study it very carefully, all in context, what will we understand? That there's one sound in all of the Shastra, that the meaning of all of the other sounds will be understood by uttering. And what is that sound? Krishnanam. And therefore it is said, in Rupa Goswami said, that the Upanishads are like valuable jewels that give off rays of effulgence. And those rays of the aphorisms are shedding light on the glory of one sound, all those sounds, the sound of Harinam. In Namastakam, his first verse. So we should take heart. We will be victorious by sound. This is our proclamation. And that sound is Krishna Nam. There is no more efficacious path than chanting the holy name of the Lord. And this can be demonstrated repeatedly from Scripture. And it is, of course, universally accepted in all religious quarters that the name of God has some divinity and power. And Chaitanya Mahaprabhu made a religion out of this universal principle. Nam Dharma. He made a religion out of that. So therefore, while it's true, any name of God has power, and Mahaprabhu himself has said, Nam Namakari Bahudani Jasarva Shakti, so you have so many names, and in them is your Shakti. If we're convinced on this point, this universal point, that God's name has power, then the person who made a religion out of the name it would be wise to go to him to find out, is there any name in particular out of all those names that might be most powerful of all the names? And yes, the name is Krishna. And furthermore, if you chant Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Ram, Hare Ram, Ram Ram, Hare Hare, this combination of the names is even more potent. Sometimes we sing, Radhe Sham, Radhe Sham, Sham Sham, Radhe Radhe. But Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare is more powerful, even. Although Hare means Radha. It may mean Hari also, in the general sense. O Hari, O Krishna, O Ram. Because Hare is the vocative of Hari and of Hara. So it's respectfully addressing. It may mean Hari, Krishna, or it may mean Hara. And Hare, meaning the vocative of Hara, indicates Radha. So in that sense, this is more potent because when we say about Radha this, that this about her, that she has the power to steal away Krishna, Hari, then that was... If Krishna hears he's saying that, he will think, goodness, I have to pay attention to that person. I have to cover his mouth. That means I have to take him back to Golok. Such intimate information should not be distributed widely. <laughs> if they knew about my private life like this, how do they, that'll be embarrassing to me. So after a while, you keep saying that. Say it right. Krishna <laughs> want to come and cover your mouth and take you to the Nityalila. So, the uproarious sound reverberated through the sky and earth and sent fear into the hearts of Dhritarashtra's son. Then, O king, the son of Pandava, who carries the banner of Hanuman, Having looked over the army of Dhritarashtra's sons in battle array, raised his bow in preparation as weapons were readied and spoke the following words to Krishna, the master of the senses. So we'll stop there. It's as far as I wanted to go today. We're up to verse 20. Then there's a shift in the, in the text. And we go to the other side of Arjun's good 
character. As I mentioned, this is about, in one sense, the qualifications of the disciple. So we've had a contrast. What is Duryodhana's position? Now we'll hear what is Arjuna's position. Simon Bhagavad Gita. Any question? Yeah. Did you do your homework? Well, you weren't here for the last class. So you did your homework. So what was the significance of that homework in relation to the class? That's a good question. That was what I was going to ask you. (laughs) The homework was what? 82nd chapter of Bhagavatam? And 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 some chapter of uh, Madhilila? Vasudev performing the sacrifice at Kurukshetra. And all the sages came and Krishna was there and everyone. So that chapter you said to read it out of the Krishna book. Yeah. And then also the, uh, the Lord dancing around the Right. Well, the, the importance of reading that was was because we had discussed the significance of Kurukshetra from a very esoteric point of view in the previous class. There was a general idea of the significance of Kurukshetra, but we discussed it in terms of Krishna having been there f- about 50 years earlier, the first time he went to Kurukshetra. Now at Bhagavad Gita, he's stepping down at Kurukshetra the second time. And so the implication is that the remembrance of the first time he was there is going to come to light and influence his speech to Arjun in Bhagavad Gita. Therefore, his speech will have to touch the upper limits of bhakti, which came to light when he first came to Kurukshetra and met with gopis and the inhabitants of Vrindavan after some time of separation. In that chapter of the Bhagavatam that you were instructed to read, the verses of Krishna's negotiating with the gopis and trying to explain himself and being embarrassed and being defeated by the gopis, all those verses are found there. So I wanted you to have a chance to read over those verses yourself and see them in the context of the whole chapter. And the key verses from that chapter of the Bhagavatam where Krishna tries to make excuses, blame fate and destiny for their separation and so forth. And the gopis say, well, you know, you may blame it on God, but you are God, so you're not off the hook. And finally, then he surrenders, and he says that actually, if you want to know the fact that a lot of people approach me for eternal life, but you've approached me in a different way, matsneha, with certain kind of affection, and I'm purchased by that. So I may go back to Dwarka, but my heart is with you, wherever you are. So these are very intimate discussions between uh, Krishna and gopis, and a very high part of the, the teaching and so forth. And that teaching in Bhagavatam, those verses are found in the chapter that I asked you to read in Madhilila of Rathiyatra, which is the reenacting of that Leela in the Bhagavatam, that Kurukshetra Leela. That's Mahaprabhu envisioned Rathiyatra. That was what it was about. So I just wanted to give you some background material. But I want to emphasize that point because I pretty much assuming that a good number of you other than my best student didn't read all those chapters and so forth. And that's part of the reason that we're having these kind of gatherings. Just don't come and turn us into some form of entertainment. It's nice and you hear some good verses and so forth. I would like you to, as you can see from my commentary in the Bhagavad Gita, I've uh, gone deeply into the scriptures and the whole the whole of the Gaudiya grunt as far as possible and try to draw out from it the, its organic nature, it has, it's systematic, how it all works together and so forth. And it's, of course, my life's been like this, my whole life as a sadhaka, for those who know me like Vashi Shekha for, for, you know, for many, many years. And it's been very useful, helpful to me. So I want to help you in that way also, that you follow up on these types of classes so that they just don't become a form of entertainment. You go and read how the Maharaj is drawing from Bhagavad Gita this insight, and he's told us it's found over in this chapter and that Leela and so forth. You try to, this is the the idea of it. I want I want you to advance in devotional service, and I don't want to just be a an information bureau or an entertainer. And so in my life, I found that that involved becoming preoccupied with this. So I realize you're all sannyasdevaktas for the most part, so you have material desires, but. If you do it right, like I mentioned earlier, and you have a right livelihood, <laughs> then you should get some mystic insight to the fact that, you know, there's an inner life and it's really more important. Somewhere in your life, you've got to make this transition 
where what now is your main focus and what now is Muzak in the background of your life, that Muzak becomes the main focus and your everyday concerns become like Muzak, just kind of like background music, just kind of going on, playing itself out. And what I mean by that is that your interest in spiritual life, inner life, has taken precedence over your everyday life and you're actually excited about practicing because you're doing it sincerely and, and consistently enough and following good guidance like coming to these classes and following the readings and you can email me and ask me questions from the readings and so forth you know independent of the sangha I have people that do that and I correspond with them somehow you got to get to the point where this balance shifts and your sadhana is just not something that you do because you're supposed to do it, get it over with, and while you're doing it, you're waiting for it to end so that you can get on with the more important things of life. The balance shifts, and those more important things of life become the sadhana itself. There's a life here, a real life, and a perspective from which to view the world that's very different and very peaceful, at the least, satisfying, that uh, makes ordinary things seem uh, charming. And every little insignificant duty becomes a, a joy. If you can make this switch in the balance of these two things, then even your ordinary duties will become joyful. You'll see everything all more in the light of, of spiritual progress. And those that are kind of getting in the way of that culture, then naturally they'll be retired. I mean, we all got involved in this for a reason. We should see that that's coming about. And if it's not, then we should rethink and reorient ourselves. And it's really just a reorientation to practicing consciously and taking good association. So do your homework. I didn't give you any this time, but I'll, I'll think of some. Then it will all, you know, we'll have a test, yeah. I'll invite you up to Audario and you'll all have to chant 64 rounds a day for weekend and other such things. Okay, so why don't we stop because we talked for a long time and we can take some prashad and relax and see what comes of that.